right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Colossians, please, chapter 4. The words you and I use are a sign, really. They speak to our spiritual maturity. James says that the tongue is a rudder. It gives direction to the entire life. It is the rudder of the life. The tongue is the rudder. It actually changes our direction. What we speak out of our mouth changes our direction of our life. It will either bring you into a safe harbor or end us on the reef of ruin. One person once said the tongue is but three inches long, yet it can kill a man six feet high. Today we're going to talk about how that a tongue of a believer is different. It just is simply different. Not that that person always is talking about God or quoting the Bible or praying, but the tongue of a believer is just different, and it ought to be. And why shouldn't it be? Because when Christ is in us, it changes us. That is really the theme of the book of Colossians, Christ in us. Let's all bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this uh, truth this morning. Lord, I thank you uh, for the blessed time it's been in uh, just uh, studying it, thinking about it, praying over it. In uh, like, a, like a good mother, uh, cooking a meal, thinking about what her family will enjoy and how nutritious it will be for them. And Lord, all week long I've been thinking about these precious saints here, how I love them. And Lord, how I wish so much for them to get this truth, and for me as well. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you'll gather all of our thoughts for those that are regulars, for those that are maybe even here for the first time. It's no accident, Lord, they're here. And so, Holy Spirit, speak. I pray that, Lord, you will make this an epic moment, a watershed Christian moment for them. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Colossians. What a tremendous book. Good, beloved Pastor Paul is being a faithful shepherd. He is swinging his staff wisely but distinctly, and he is beating the wolves off of the church at Colossae. Fake religionists were muddying the water. They were saying, what you need to do in order to be right with God is you've got to go through these rituals. Others were making additional rules, and it was just messing the people up. You know, if you hear a lie once, you probably dismiss it, but it may have a little ring of truth to it, and the more you hear it, the more it almost becomes, maybe this is true. The Apostle Paul was swinging that shepherd's staff saying, no, no. Watch out for these fake religionists. Christ is what you need, and in Christ is all you need. And then, having established that in the first three chapters, he then turns practical. As so many of the uh, prison epistles, they are doctrinal at the beginning and practical at the end. And so he starts in chapter four by saying, Now, what does it then look like if you are? in Christ, and Christ is in you. Well, if Christ is in you, then certainly you're going to be different. And it's going to come out maybe most definitely by the words you speak. In John chapter 6, you can just refer to this at another time, or you can look at it now. But in John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus uh, had just fed uh, the 5,000. They had followed him across uh, to Capernaum, and uh, Jesus was uh, lovingly uh, chastising them and saying, you know, I think you're more interested in food than you are spiritual food. Look at verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh, or all this food, profited nothing. Listen to this. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Well, now, if you have Christ in us, and if His words are in us, then we're going to be speaking spiritual words, life-giving words, life-giving words to our mate and life-giving words to our family and even to ourself. One of the reasons why it's, I think, in good at times, maybe much of the time to pray out loud is because we speak words of life and we read out loud 
That's why we have preaching, because the words of, that come out are words of life. Peter also, in the first epistle, First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, talked about our responsibilities as a follower of Christ. He said, for hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Verse 22, listen to this. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Again, what was the thing that characterized Christ, different from anybody else? No guile in his mouth. No guile. You never find guile in his mouth. Nothing uh, off-color, nothing uh, bitter, nothing mean, nothing uh, anti-God. His words were words of life. And so last week we uh, began this, uh, uh, this quest to find out what characterizes a child of God, a man of God, a woman of God. I appreciate that football player on the Saints team this week who had a big uh, uh, headband that said, man of God. You know, that's the way we ought to, uh, you say, well, that's pretty bold putting it on your forehead. Well, my wife was reading in the book of Revelation that when uh, Jesus comes back, has, it, it says the, the saints of God have their him, his name written on their foreheads. That's pretty bold, isn't it? On your forehead, the name of God. Every day you go out there, I wonder if people see the name of Jesus on your forehead, right out there front and center. Well, we found out, first of all, that uh, the words uh, ought to be words of confession or prayer. Verse 2, continue in prayer and watching the same with thanksgiving. One of the greatest indication that we are the genuine thing, the genuine article, is that we speak to God in prayer. How should we speak to God? Continue persistent. How should we speak to God? Watch. We ought to stay at it persistent and committedly and continually. How do we continue in prayer? Well, we talked about last Sunday briefly. uh, It was a blessed Sunday last week with Pastor Boyka there from Ukraine, but uh, we talked very briefly about this verse and reminded ourselves that that means that having a God consciousness, that means that every event in life is viewed with a God. And the first thing on my lips is not some uh, irritation or this, but a prayer. If it's good, thank you, God. If it's not so good, we turn it into a request. And so that's what I think it's meaning. Continue. All day long, continue. Daily. People say, well, I said my prayers in the morning. No, we say our prayers all day long. Continue in it. Continue in it. Just pray about everything. That's what that verse is meaning. One of the greatest characteristics then of a new belief of a believer's heart, a new man, a new woman in Christ, a man of God, a woman of God, is that it is characterized by their confession. Number two, and here's where we pick up our outline today, it is characterized by concern. In verses three and four. All right, let's read verses three and four together, if you would please, out loud. Reading from the King James Version, ready, begin. With all praying also for us, that God would open to us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak. Two times in these verses, we see the word speak. Once we see the word utterance, all these thoughts are about the mouth, about the tongue, about our words. And Paul says, I need prayer. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I need prayer for my mouth. You know, that's not an easy thing to admit, but uh, that's a great prayer request. God, Lord, I need help with my mouth. Really, his uh, real concern was for the souls of mankind and for the glory of God. Oh, God, help me to use my mouth for something good. Help me to use my mouth for the kingdom of God. Look at the end of verse 3, if you would, please. It says, for which I am also in bonds. Now, You'd say, wait a second, what does that mean? Is that uh, talking about some financial product that uh, he had bought? No, we're not talking about stocks and bonds here. We're talking about prison. He was in prison. You'd say, wait a second, how did a pastor get into prison? Was he a bad guy? No, he was a good guy, but uh, he found himself in prison. Let me give you a little background on that. And uh, for those of you who come on Sunday night or been going through verse by verse through the book of Acts, you know exactly what we're talking about. For 25 years, this amazing dynamo for God was out preaching. 
Now, he, when he got saved, as we'll talk about tonight, it was an absolute miracle. You talk about miracle, it was a miracle that this guy got saved. Well, he got saved, and man, he became a flaming evangelist from God. And he took all these wonderful missionary journeys all over the Middle East. He preached, and wherever he would go, basically, there was either a riot or a revival. He was a tremendous um, uh, instrument for God. Well, after 25 years of doing that, uh, he felt a call to go back to Jerusalem. He, uh, had a, he was uh, having a personal time of uh, commitment to God. He had taken a Nazarite vow. He goes to Jerusalem, and there he comes to the temple, minding his own business, there performing his vow, when everything just breaks loose. Oh, it was terrible. They accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. They accuse him of hating the nation. They accuse him of sedition to the Roman uh, Empire. I mean, they, anything they could throw, hoping something would stick. He gets arrested. The, uh, Claudius Lysias takes him into the fort and finally ends up um, saving him from all these crazy people. Uh, several journey things happen along the way. And he finally ends now. We find him in Rome. He has been a prisoner for a couple of years. He's in Rome. And in Acts chapter 28, you can look at it with us here on the overhead here, but it says in verse 20, or chapter 28, verse 16, and when we came to Rome, so he's been falsely imprisoned. He had appealed to uh, the, uh, the, the Caesar there, to Nero actually. The centurion delivered the prisoner to the captain of the guard. But Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. Now we find out a little bit more what that means. Verse 30, and Paul dwelt two whole years in a hired house or a rented house. And received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Now, so during this season in, uh, in Rome there, here he is, he's in Rome, he's in a rented house, so he's in a leased house, the original Airbnb, and there he is, uh, he has been placed there by the emperor. And uh, he is uh, chained to a soldier the entire time, and yet he was allowed the freedom for people to come. Now, you'd say, well, what happened? He preached Christ. He won soldier after soldier to the Lord. While he was in that prison, by the way, he wrote the book of Philemon. He wrote the book of Philippians and Ephesians. And uh, look at chapter, look at Ephesians chapter, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1, verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ, and again, I was a prisoner of Christ, are manifest, they're made open in all the palace and in all other places. So uh, they kept sending in soldiers. I mean, they had to have, you know, maybe eight hour shifts. And so three, hour, uh, three shifts a day chained to the apostle Paul while he's in this rented house. He is preaching Christ. He is using his mouth for God. And Soldiers are hearing the gospel hour after hour after hour. You know, when you're chained to the, a preacher like the Apostle Paul, I mean, that's going to be, a, that's gonna be a, a different thing for you. Look what it says in chapter 4 of Philippians in verse 22. All the saints salute you, chiefly those that are of Caesar's household. Of all things, Paul won all these servants to Christ who were in the emperor Nero's household. So now we find out what was going on in Rome. Rome was a, was a tragic city at that time, even though it was the, really the center of the Western world. It was estimated that about 2 million people lived in Rome at that time, but it was a great disparity of the classes. About a million of that 2 million were slaves. Many of them slept in the streets because they didn't really have houses. It was a terrible place. The rich were getting richer. The poor were getting poorer. There was uh, uh, greed. There was terrible um, corruption going on. Of course, Nero tries to burn the city down. And uh, while he's burning it down, Paul's burning it down from the inside, winning people to Christ. I mean, he is just using this situation for God. And so the whole point is, he was praying, oh, God, help me to continue using my mouth for God with boldness. Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, 
speaking of the early church, when they had prayed, the place was shaken when they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. What was the prayer of the early church? God, help us to be bold about our faith. Help us to use our mouth. People say, well, I just, I'm there not very good at talking, but I, I just live for Christ. Well, I say amen to that. It's good to live for Christ. But friends, we're not going to be able to win the world if we don't speak up. If you just simply live good, you might touch a few lives, but someone's got to say something. I mean, if you go into a city, you can't just say, I'm going to go there and we're going to start a church. I'm just going to be a good Christian. You'd be a good Christian and folks, there's not going to be any church start. I mean, it's going to be very rare if it does. It'd be a miracle. But God wants someone to speak up. All of us need to speak up for God and we need to use our mouth. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, pray for me while I'm in this prison of all places. He wasn't saying, pray that I'll get out of here. Pray that, you know, justice will be done. He said, no, just pray that while I'm here, that I could speak for God. In 1848, the unimaginable happened in America. The mighty Niagara Falls actually stopped. I mean, millions, tens of millions of gallons of water pour over those falls every hour. And yet in 1848, Niagara Falls stopped. What happened? Well, the same thing that happens to many Christians it got frozen at the mouth. And when you get frozen at the mouth, nothing comes out. And we as believers are often frozen. We don't know what to say. And so here Paul says, use your mouth for Christ. You say, well, what do I say? Look at verse 3. Speak the mystery of Christ. Then I might make it, verse 4, manifest, or I might get it out there, as I ought to. As I ought to. Now, when I see words like ought to, that means that's something I'm supposed to do. I ought to do this. And so what should each of us do? Well, I would say that there are at least three ways we ought to speak. Number one, we ought to speak boldly. We ought to speak boldly, fearlessly, actually confidently in freedom speaking the gospel. Verse three, the mystery of Christ. Don't get all wrapped up in all the latest Christian eye candy, you know, this book or that book, but speak, it says, the mysteries or sacred secrets, <laughs> the amazing mystery, how that God could come and be born in the flesh, the mystery of Christmas. And that's one reason why we take at least twice a year to speak of the mysteries of the incarnation. And that's why at Christmas season, we have all these wonderful dramas. This year is going to be an awesome one, the Christmas shoes. And again, it's just another way to, to speak the mysteries of Christ. At Easter, we speak of the mystery of the resurrection. And so we ought to speak of the life of Christ. We ought to speak about the parables. Whenever we get a chance, talk about Jesus. That's the point. <laughs> he said, we ought to speak boldly. Number two, I think the way we ought to speak is to speak wisely. Proverbs 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. The wise Solomon said, you want to know what a rightly spoken word is like? A rightly spoken word is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. Now he was referring to probably some sort of a table ornament that they would have immediately, you know, thought of. And, uh, you know, some uh, wedding rings are white and gold together, and uh, they're just beautiful. And imagine some ornate uh, vase that, you know, has both uh, white gold and silver gold, or has different, uh, different uh, looks in it, maybe different types of jewels. And so what he's saying here is that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. It is not, it's just as the, this beautiful ornament on the table is easy on the eyes, you ought to speak easy on the ears. You know, sometimes when a lady is very beautiful, uh, somebody will say she's easy on the eyes. And here it's saying uh, we ought to speak easy on the ears. 
take it easy on my ears, bro. Take it easy on my ears. Uh, the idea is, uh, are we speaking with warmth or concern or brightness or meaningful questions? You know, the fact is, uh, uh, we can, uh, if we would actually listen to ourselves, I remember one uh, mother who, uh, uh, her children, not meaning to shame her, but they just, uh, they recorded, uh, you know, what was going on, I think at a uh, dinner or something, and uh, later they played it. First of all, she said, that's me, because she didn't really recognize the, the tone, you know, just it didn't, when you're talking, it, it sounds different than when you hear it. And then she was ashamed of how biting and how sharp and how uh, hurtful her words were, and she was so convicted. And just that tape recorder just brought it to mind. You know, the fact is, we're not speaking like we're like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. Uh, we're just, uh, we got this idea that, you know, we're going to speak truth. Well, nothing wrong with gold, but it's good to have gold set in a nice surrounding. Uh, speak easy on the ears. I think it's saying speak wisely. And then how ought we to speak? I think we ought to speak truthfully. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love. We have to speak truthfully. Now, uh, it's not easy to tell the truth always because we hate to hurt people and it's not easy to hear the truth. Imagine yourself to be a good doctor. Now, over the years, I've had uh, uh, several doctors, an orthopedic surgeon and general uh, doctor, other doctors, and um, they all had different bedside manners. Now, as far as I know, they were all good doctors. They all knew their stuff. They were educated, good doctors in what they did. But boy, they varied a lot in their bedside manner. But the one thing they had consistent, they spoke the truth. Now, in our case, um, whatever else we do, we must speak the truth. Now, if we can have a nice bedside manner, that's a, that's a plus. If we're going to tell somebody they're going to die of cancer, it'd be sure nice to be able to do it so compassionately and to tell them the facts and to be upfront about it. And that's what ultimately people need. And that's what we all want from our physician. We want the truth. It's been said you want the truth from two people, your physician and your mechanic. And that's exactly right. And from a preacher. Amen. There's three of them. But uh, we want the truth. And that's what certainly we ought to do. We ought to give truthful speaking. How ought we to speak? Number three, I think uh, the tongue of a godly person, of a man of God, a woman of God, is characterized not only by confession, prayer, not only by concern for the loss, for the glory of God, but consistency. Look at verse five. Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. In your day-to-day -day journeys, walk in wisdom. It's been said that your walk, excuse me, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And it's true, our walk is the loudest thing that speaks. What you and I are is what gives credibility to our words. One pastor said, your life speaks so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. And it's true, often um, what we're doing with our life is far different than our words. Look at verse number five. It says your walk. Notice it's a walk. It's a walk. It's a day-to-day -day walk. Now, the neat thing about a walk is it's extraordinarily simple. It's just one foot in front of another. Many people get the idea that the Christian life is like a rocket ship. Boy, they get born again. They become a Christian and boy, they just soar everywhere and you know, really, the, the Christian life is all about that walk. It's getting up in the morning, those first steps. It's that first greeting. It's the greeting in the middle of the day. It's the thoughts that we think. It's the words that we say. It's that day-to-day -day thing that we do, that conversation at the office, that conversation that we have with someone at the coffee shop. It is simply walking in wisdom, making godly decisions. Walking in wisdom, that means simply it's the Word. Walking in wisdom means I'm walking in the Word, I'm speaking the Word. Whether we're actually speaking actual Bible verses, it's just that it's God coming out of us because it's been God coming into us. You know, over the last decade or so, there's a whole new language out there. 
It's a language of acronyms and abbreviations. We all use them, those of you that text, and I guess just about everybody does anymore. Uh, you know some of them, right? Uh, TGIF. What is that? Right, that's the abbreviation for thank God it's Friday. How about this one, YOLO? Anybody that? You only live once, right. And uh, I know every lady's going to know this one. How about BOGO? Buy one, get one, right? Here's another one I actually had to look up this week. <laughs> I'm Ho. Anybody got that one? I'm Ho? I-M-H-O? In my humble opinion. <laughs> I was really surprised. I thought it was a certain author, and I thought, man, isn't that? I never heard that before. Well, here's another one, Geigo. And if you're a computer person, you know this one. Geigo, what is it? Garbage in, garbage out, right. Well, I'm going to redefine Geigo. God in, God out. Amen. That's exactly what it needs to be right there. The fact is, what comes in is what's going to come out, and it comes out of our mouth. Geigo, let's make sure it's God in, God's Word in, and then we're not even, you don't even realize it's just going to come out. God in, God out. What does walking in wisdom mean? Number one, I think it believes a, having a healthy respect for God. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to walk wisely, it all begins with the fear of the Lord. I will tell you, I am scared to disobey God. I am. I'm scared to disobey God. You say, well, pastor, you're scared. Isn't that kind of a, an authoritating view of God? Uh, I thought we were under grace. Well, let me tell you something about God's grace. Paul said it wisely when he said that grace reigns through righteousness. I am, a, I am scared of disobeying God. I mean, I'm not ashamed to admit. You say, well, you have a problem. I have, honestly, I, there are a lot of things I do, not just because I love God, but because I'm afraid of God. A healthy respect for God. And I honestly, I think it is one of the best ways to get on track is just, you know what? I am afraid of God doing something that I, I don't want to have happen in my life. I have a hard enough time getting through life without being on God's bad side. A healthy respect for God. I think number two, it believes in a, it is a firm belief in prayer. If I want to walk in wisdom, James 1.5 says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And he gives it. Anybody who asks, it shall be given. Many of us feel ill-equipped to use our mouth for God. Oh, what would I say? Uh, ask for wisdom. Paul, oh, what would I do? Ask for wisdom. I don't know how to handle it. Ask for wisdom. What do I do? Ask for wisdom. How to speak. Well, I don't know what to say. Ask for wisdom. Wisdom comes as a gift from God. And so if I'm going to walk wisely with my mouth throughout the day, it is something I need to pray about. You say, well, I just, don't, I just can't control my tongue. Amen. You can't, but God can. Ask for wisdom. Number three, I believe to walk in wisdom means a concerted effort to walk with the wise. If I'm going to walk wisely with my tongue, if I'm going to be a man of God, if I'm going to be a new man in Christ, I need to walk with the wise. Proverbs 13 and verse 20. Proverbs. Great uh, proverb given by Solomon to his son. He said, son, you want to be wise? Walk with wise people. But if you are a companion of fools, you will be destroyed. A companion of fools. Walk with wise people. Now, there are many ways to walk with wise people. First of all, of course, we, one thing we know about is make sure that the friendships that we have or our children have or or as wise as we can possibly make them. I mean, you can't uh, control everything, but certainly we want to make sure we're as wise as possible. Get them in a good church. That's walking with the wise. I mean, I would, uh, I would drive an hour to get to a good church. If I knew there were wise people there, wise uh, young people, uh, wise children, I'd make sure I had them there or in a good Christian school, walking with the wise, reading good books. I mean, we, uh, in my... Um, study there. I have hundreds of books and all these wonderful wise men, and I can go up to the shelf, and I can, and women of God, and I can read somebody who's so wise, I can be a companion of wise people. There are many ways to walk with the wise. We can listen to good preaching, and 
good teaching. And, but I mean, there's just so many ways, but make sure that we walk with the wise. The fact is, if we are a companion of fools, it's going to destroy us. It's, if we're always listening to this movie and this crazy country song or rap song, or if we're always in this or that, folks, with being a companion of fools. And notice what it says, walk in wisdom towards them that are on the outside. Look at that verse there in Colossians. Towards them that are on the outside. Now, uh, outside and inside, uh, well, now, uh, for example, if you tell an inside joke, that's kind of impolite in a public company, right? Because uh, you don't, uh, don't want to make people feel bad. Uh, in the financial world, if you do insider trading, that's uh, not a good thing. Uh, you're going to get yourself in trouble. But in the kingdom of God, being an insider is a good thing. It means that you are inside the family of God. So being outside, being on the outside means you're outside the family of God. That means you're saved. You're unsaved. But when you're saved, you're on the inside. What God is saying is, is that one reason we should watch our tongue is because people on the outside, outside the family of God, they're watching us. And the only Bible they'll ever read is me. The greatest Bible that we can have is that godly shoe leather that we just day by day, we just we are an example for God. You know, early Christians were often viewed with suspicion in the Roman Empire. For example, did you know that in the early days of the Roman Empire, did you know that Christians were actually considered atheists? Because they did not worship the gods of Rome and Greece. So they were considered atheists. Did you know that the early Christians were labeled as unpatriotic? Because they would not burn incense to the leader of their political country, the emperor. Did you know that they were also considered immoral? Christians were considered immoral because they, as it says in the book of Jude, they had these love feasts. Of course, God, that was just a terminology for coming to church and having all the love, the spreading the love, you know, sharing the good words with each other and sharing the food and so forth like that. But they were considered being immoral. They were even <laughs> considered to be cannibals because they talked about drinking the blood of Christ and eating the body of Christ. And so Christians are, were considered atheists. They were considered unpatriotic. They were considered all immoral and even cannibals. And so the Apostle Paul said, folks, you've got to beat that down by your words and by what you do in your day-to-day -day lives. Walk wisely. How? Notice the next phrase. Redeeming the time. That means buying opportunity. It's the Greek word agrazo. It is the word agora. When we were in Athens, uh, one of the things that we visited was the Parthenon there, and the Agora, A-G-O-R-A. -A. It just means marketplace. This is the word marketplace, marketplacing your time, buying it up. Actually, it is a, has a preposition in front of this agorazo, ek agorazo, which means uh, buying out of. It means taking complete use or buying it all up, <laughs> buying, buying everything that there is, you know, like when... When I, we couldn't find my little turkey sausage I liked the other day, uh, and we couldn't find it, and so Pauline finally found it, and she bought everything that was in that store. She, she, ek agrazo, she bought it all up. God said, use all that you, buy everything that you possibly can, redeeming the time. God said, use your tongue for that which is good. Now, it doesn't mean we can talk, we talk about God all the time. I mean, we, but it does mean that as we ought to use our mouth for good things and make sure that God is the priority in all that we do, all that we say. Here, Apostle Paul says, make sure that your mouth is consistent with being a Christian. The mouth of a man of God, a woman of God is characterized by confession. It's a praying mouth. I pray. When I see something, I pray. When I'm happy about something, I pray. It's a praying mouth, consistently praying. Number two, it's a concerned mouth, concerned that God get glory, concerned for the lost. It is a consistent mouth, walking in wisdom. And then number four, it is characterized by constraint. Now look at verse number six. Let your speech be always with grace, 
seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every mouth. This is talking about our day-to-day speech. Notice what it says. It should be always with grace. Always with grace. Making gracious speech. Gracious speech is appropriate speech, is kind speech, is sensitive, thoughtful, and not bitter or abrasive. We ought to have graceful speaking. Actually, the, the word in the classic Greek there is the word charming. And it's the idea of speaking with charm. And I wouldn't, honestly, wouldn't be the worst thing that some of us Christians go to charm school, Christian charm school, that we could speak with grace. And actually the word, the intent is graciously spiritual. We can be as spiritual as we possibly can with our speaking. Now, I don't think we all have to talk like Mr. Rogers, you know, and uh, uh, Mr. Rogers used to come on years ago when the kids were little, you know, and welcome to the neighborhood. And that guy used to, honestly, I could have a hard time listening to that guy. I don't know what it was about him, but um, I don't think we have to talk like Mr. Rogers. And I don't think we ought to make sure that, you know, we have to be politically correct about everything or wishy-washy. But the fact is, I don't think we need to be purposely offensive or even not purposely, but we ought to speak with a certain amount of charm, Christian grace. The Apostle Paul, we're going to read about it tonight. Here he is facing King Agrippa, (laughs) a king. He was a vassal king at the best, and he living with his sister of all things, crazy. I mean, this guy was a wicked guy. But at the same time, uh, Paul was concerned about his soul. And here he is facing King Agrippa. He's there, hasn't had a clean pair of toga for two years. He's chained to a prisoner. He's in this massive uh, big room here, and he's looking at Bernice and, and, uh, and King Agrippa. And I, if I would have him, man, I would have just let go. I would have just, you know, flew off the handle. But the Apostle Paul was polite. He was direct. He was truthful. But he was very, and he never even brought up the sin of Agrippa and Bernice. You know, I think we can be full of Christian grace. We can, there's other hills to die on. I don't think we have to call out every sin of everybody we ever know. The idea is Christian grace. And then it says, seasoned with salt. Now, salt is very effective, it's very usable. It does at least three things. Number one, it heals, salt heals. It stings, but boy, I tell you one thing, you put it in a wound. Our uh, pediatrician years ago uh, told us that the be- absolutely best thing, no hands down, better than any medicine, if your child has um, congestion, you take a salt water, put it in a dropper, put it in their nose, and it just cleans it right up. Boy, I'm telling you what, it works like a, a miracle. Never seen like it. Salt has got this, uh, it's astringent. It has its, its amazing properties, but it stings a little at first. But boy, I tell you what, it cleanses. It heals. And that's what God's Word does. God's Word is a healing agent. It also purifies. When we speak with pure words, it prevents corruption. If, we're, if we want a corrupted family, just veer away from the Bible. Just Stop going to church. You'll, you'll corrupt your family. It won't be very much time at all. Just go ahead. Stop going to church. Stop trying to make an effort to have pure words in your home. I mean, it'll, you'll be surprised how quick it'll corrupt. In fact, Israel found out how quick you can go from worshiping Jehovah God to worshiping a false calf in about a month, 40 days. I'll tell you what, it, it, the salt purifies. Number three, it enhances. And that's actually, I think, what it's saying here. That's the purpose with salt. It enhances flavor. I, I've eaten hospital food before. Most, I actually like most hospital food. I, I, I don't know what it is about it, but I like it. I, I like airplane food, but every once in a while you get something, and I mean, it is bland. It just has no salt in it. I'm like, oh my goodness, what in the world? But I mean, you got to put a little salt on that stuff. And uh, my wife uh, always... Uh, good-naturedly uh, says, uh, she said, you might want to taste it before you salt it. <laughs> good thought, huh? And, uh, but my plan is I salt it, then I taste it. And I, I just need if I need more salt or less, you know, but anyway, uh, it enhances. The, pop, the thought is here, speak 
with charm. Enhance your words. Speak with uh, uh, godly wit, really, is kind of what it's actually saying here. Salt your speech. Salt it. Now, back in that day, salt was a huge commodity. Pepper was too, but salt was a huge commodity. It was used for everything. Since they didn't have refrigeration, they used salt to, uh, you know, preserve meat, and they used it just about, they used it for many medical things. I mean, they just used salt everywhere. So salt was something they all thought about, but uh, there were some people who were not very nice, and uh, they would dilute the salt. They would mix it with a fine quality sand. When they did that, they would make it almost unusable and really no good for anything but to put, under the, put on the ground. You just walk on it. Jesus talked about speech and lifestyles that have lost their saltiness. And some people just have useless speech. They, useless lies. We just, we're clueless. We don't you know, we don't, our, our speech isn't uh, healthy, and it, it just not, doesn't really do anything. And someone once said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I know that when we try to win people to Christ, we can't make them drink the Bible. It's true. We can't make them suck that down. But the way we talk and the, the way our lifestyle is, you can put salt in a horse's oats and make him thirsty. And that's the way that, that a Christian can talk. No, I can't make him drink the water, but I can live and talk in such a way that I make them interested in the gospel. Here in Acts chapter 22 or 26, we'll see, I think, next uh, Sunday night, Agrippa says, almost, Paul. Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. You almost got me. How could he get to that point? Saul, Saul, or Paul was so salty. He, was just, he had seasoned his speech in such a way. He was making him thirsty. Notice what the last part of that verse 6 says, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Do we know how to talk to every man? The apostle Paul was... He could talk to a little Roman child slave in the street. He could talk to a Roman senator. He could talk to an educated Greek. He could talk to a mean, nasty Pharisee. He could talk, chat with a lovely Christian lady. He could speak with a brother in Christ. He knew how to answer every man. Now, how did he do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 9 let me read this quickly. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. For though I be free from all men, I have made myself a servant that I might gain the more. I have become a, uh, a student of people. I have become a student of how to talk to people. Why? So that I can gain them. And I'm free. I, I'm not bound by this, but I, it is my desire to be able to talk to any person. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. When I talk to a Jewish person, I don't tell them about the best place to get bacon in town. You know, boy, I mean, you would talk about a bacon and tomato sandwiches, you know? They're just like, you know, oh, and you, I love my steak just rare with the blood running out of it. <laughs> a Jewish person, oh, you know. And uh, the Apostle Paul didn't talk like that. He said, when I'm with a Jewish person, I'm very respectful about uh, dietary things. I'm respectful about their feast days. Uh, how was your uh, Hanukkah? How was your, you know, how was your, uh, how are the things that you did there at the bar mitzvah for your, for your child? I, as a, I became a Jewish person. Not, I didn't put myself under the law uh, of their laws. I, I just, I wanted to talk to the Jewish person, verse 21. To them without the law, that's the Gentiles the heathen Gentiles, pagan Gentiles, not being without the law, but under the law to Christ. He said, now, I'm not doing anything unbiblical, that I might gain them that are without the law. I could talk, I could talk it right up with the Gentiles. And boy, Paul did. When you read uh, his uh, epistles, he talked about boxing. That was a big thing in the Greeks. 
He said, I don't just box in the air. He talked about all the, I mean, he talked about sports. He talked about, and then when he was with the Greeks, what did he do? Like one of your philosophies, uh, one of your philosophers said, so-and-so, he quoted this philosopher. Paul was brilliant at answering every man because his thought was, I'm going to be a student of people for the glory of God so I can use my tongue. I don't want to be a clueless Christian just walking around just, uh, you know, with my, my head in the air and not figuring out, but that people need the Lord. That's what he was. He, and clueless. Now, we all have been around clueless people. They're at the restaurant. You're there, and what, there's always one table where they are talking so loud that everybody in the restaurant can hear them. I don't know what it is, but it's, if it wasn't so uh, rude, it's just hilarious. It's like, how, how can I hear everything that's going on in that table? I can't even talk with my wife. But there's that one table. They're clueless. Or the guy on the airplane who's talking on the phone. You know, and you're like, oh, come on, please, give me a break. I'm going to come over there and take that phone. I'm going to throw it in the privy over there. That's, you know, the clueless people or space invaders. <laughs> people who get inside your personal space, you know. You ever have people that do that? You're talking to somebody and they get right up in your face. I'm kind of like, okay. And there's right up here. We used to have, a, when I was growing up, we had a little lady in our church and I won't mention her name, but her name immediately came to my mind as I was thinking about people who invade your space. I wouldn't say it because uh, uh, she's, she's with the Lord. I know she's a sweet lady, but oh my goodness, she was crazy woman. And uh, I mean, honestly, she, I don't know what planet she was from, but she was a kook ball. And uh, there I was, I was this teenage boy and this lady with these big eyes. She'd come to me. I was the pastor's son, you know, and she'd come to me and she'd get right up in my face. And then she was telling me things, you know. And I was like, oh, Lord, help me. Deliver me. And uh, I loved her, but man, whoo, whoo, she was, you know, invading their space. I have a, a little game I play. I shouldn't do it, but uh, it's a, but I, I love to kind of mess with people. And so uh, I do it sometimes at the kitchen table. Uh, Pauline's on my left. Abigail's on my right. And so during the meal, I'll just kind of push the salt and pepper over towards Abigail. And uh, she doesn't notice it. And then uh, pretty soon I, I push my glass over towards her. And then uh, I kind of start moving my stuff over. Pretty soon, she says, stop, stop that. What are you doing? You're getting over here in my space. And uh, that's, it's, it's just a, it's a father thing. If you're a father here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. God gave us children to persecute them. And I mean, it's just clueless. If you have ever wondered what a man means when he says something, here is a men's thesaurus. When a man says it's a guy thing, he means there's no rational thought pattern connected to this, and I really have no chance of making it logical. Here's another way. When a man says, uh, sure, honey, what does that mean? It means absolutely nothing. He's not going to do anything. Um... When a man says it would take too long to explain, it really means I have no idea how this works. <laughs> when a man says, honey, take a break, you're working too hard, it means I can't hear the game over the vacuum cleaner, honey. When a man says, you know how bad my memory is, honey, he means I can hum every bar of the intro to Star Trek. I know the address of the first girl I kissed. I know the vehicle identification numbers of every car I ever owned, but I forgot your birthday. I'm so sorry. Um, when a man says, oh, don't fuss, I, uh, just, uh, I just cut myself a little bit. It's no big deal. big deal. It really means I actually severed my thumb off, but I will bleed to death before I will admit that I am hurt. <laughs> and, uh, and this last one, when a man says, I'm not lost, I know exactly where we are. What he means is, no one will ever see us alive again. And uh, <laughs> one time I, it became a joke in my family that when I say it's a shortcut, everybody would go, oh, brother. And uh, one time little Grace says, I don't know how old she was, but uh, I had taken a shortcut to, over from the Fremont area. And I don't know how I got, we went up in some top of some hill and uh, 
she said, uh, Dad, what state are we in? <laughs> it's a shortcut, honey, and you shut up. Clueless. Clueless. Now, why did I say all that? Because the fact is, most of us are clueless. We walk through life, and we are clueless. But that person behind that counter, their heart is breaking. Their husband just told them this morning that he's leaving. That lady we spoke to, she has cancer. We're clueless. We're so upset because they didn't make our latte hot enough. We're clueless. Little child sinking about. Dear little... Um, Who's uh, one in the rest home? One in my mind is going. Flo. Little Flo, uh, they, she's, she's on, in um, hospice and won't be too long. But she used to come here and she'd give me a card. Pauline and several sweet ladies, they cleaned out the home there and her home because she won't ever go back. And she had all these card making stuff. And I mean, it must have taken her three, four hours to make one card. And I thought about that this week. I thought, you know, I would get that little card. That's, that's nice. It took her three or four hours, and the whole time she was thinking about her pastor. I'm clueless, and you're clueless. <laughs> We're all clueless. We just go through life. Paul said, come on, folks. Don't be clueless. Use your tongue. Be all things to all men. Think about people. Like it was said that they told John F. Kennedy when he became president, the famous words, walk slowly through the crowd. Walk slowly, Mr. Kennedy. In other words, look. Look at that person in the eye. Shake the hand of that man. Pat the head of that little boy. Realize that little boy has a burden. He has a goal. He has a dream. Don't just walk by everybody, but remember, everybody has a burden. Everybody has a heartache. Everybody needs the Lord. Annie Johnson Flint, the great hymn writer, one who really was a, was like a, that was a tremendous hymn writer in the 1800s. She wrote these words, and I close. Christ has no hands, but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men his way. He has no tongue but our tongue to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to bring them to his side. We are the only Bible the careless world will ever read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We are the Lord's last message given in deed and word. What if the line is crooked? What if the type is blurred? What if our hands are busy with other work than his? What if our feet are walking where sin's allurement is? What if our tongues are speaking of things his lips would spurn? How can we hope to help him unless from him we learn? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Oh, God, our tongues are so...